Back in 1922, at the, the Ryman uh, Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, is uh, what we often uh, refer to as this event that took place called the Tabernacle Sermons. And I might have used this illustration before uh, with you, but this was one of the most successful evangelistic efforts uh, in the 20th century. Again, this happened all the way back in 1922. There was six to 8,000 uh, people in attendance uh, they had to turn away two to 3,000 people from even getting in there because they just did not have the seating. Uh, there were newspaper writers there covering the event. And there was a big uh, to-do about, you know, who was going to speak uh, these series of lectures. You know, again, this is way back before, you know, television was really a big thing. And, uh, of course, so to go and to listen to someone speak like this was, uh, that was the entertainment of the day. And the, it, the selection came down to two individuals. There was N.B. Hardiman and C.M. Polius. Now, of course, N.B. Hardiman was the acting president of Freed Hardiman College at the time, and C.M. Polius was a preacher uh, for the church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, uh, the selection committee finally settled on Brother Hardiman to uh, preach the, the lessons, and so they selected him, and then they asked Brother Polius if he would lead songs for them every night. And for many preachers, you know, that might have been a little bit of an insult not being able to ask to speak. Or, you know, in any profession, not being uh, the one chosen, uh, might, you might feel a little insulted. But I'll never forget reading his reaction uh, from uh, the stories about what Brother Polius said. He said this, Brethren, I will be happy to sweep the floors every night if that will help to make this meeting a success. And that just, that's always stuck with me, reading those words about Brother Polius. Now, there was another brother by the name of L.L. Uh, Bergantz who assisted Brother Hardiman in his uh, outlines. And he also took the humble road and said, I cannot preach like Brother Hardiman, but I can help load his gun. Uh, he he uh, showed humility as well that, uh, you know, that maybe he wasn't the best to be selected, but he could help Brother Hardiman prepare those lessons well, tonight we're going to be completing our series in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter chapter 5 is, we're going to talk about humility uh, in this chapter. We're going to see that word uh, show up as well. Uh, now, of course, you know, if you've been with us uh, as we've been going through these lessons for the past couple of months, uh, we've been talking about uh, this, the theme of hope. Of course, uh, beginning by talking about the joy of hope, right? That we, were, um, that we were born again to a living hope. And then we looked at the conduct of hope, where God said, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And we looked at the uniqueness of hope, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We looked a couple of weeks at the behavior of hope. And noticed that, uh, you know, that Peter said that we always need to be ready to make a defense for uh, the hope that is within us. And then last week, of course, we looked at the purity and love and God of hope who told us, uh, you know, we need, to be, we need to keep fervent in our love for the brethren because love covers a multitude of sins. And so uh, as we look at 1 Peter 5 tonight, we're going to finish with this aspect of humility that Peter is going to write about. He's going to request the leaders uh, that he's writing to to be humble and he's also going to talk to uh, everyone else as well to show humility to all Christians. And of course, you know, Jesus is our example in humility. Before we get to 1 Peter, just want to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, just to remind us of the humility of Christ. 
Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, again, the same way that Peter says that we should look at Christ to our suffering, Paul says here that we need to look at Christ to humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus is God. And he didn't have to die on the cross, but he humbled himself for you and I. Jesus said, uh, while he, he lived and, uh, you know, had his earthly ministry, he, he told his disciples, you know, hand me that rag and I'm going to wash your feet. Right? Brother Polius said, hand me that broom. I'm going to sweep the arena every night to make this lectureship a success. So let's look together at what Peter has to say about humility as we begin First uh, Peter chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, Peter is addressing at this point uh, the elders among you. You know, this isn't nothing. This is nothing new for Peter. He's been addressing different groups throughout this letter. Remember, he addressed husbands and wives and and bosses. And so now he's addressing the elders um, among them. Uh, remember, he's not writing to a local church. He's writing to a, a group of Christians in a region, you know, scattered abroad. And he says to those elders, this is the Greek word prosbuteros, which uh, it simply means, uh, it can simply mean an elderly man, or it can mean uh, someone who's in the office of the eldership. And really, context is going to determine which of that uh, is uh, being dis- discussed. And we know from verses 2 to th- Two and three, but where Peter is talking about shepherding and oversight, that, that verse lets us know that he's talking about the eldership here. And, and actually, uh, within these two verses, we see all three descriptions of elders here uh, elders and shepherds and pastors, and then uh, bishops and overseers. We're going to see all three of these descriptions here in these two verses. Now, of course, Paul addresses the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But Peter has some things to say about the eldership here as well. And so he's addressing this to the elders among you. And we learn three things about Peter in that first verse alone. He said he was a fellow elder. Well, what does that mean? That means Peter met the qualifications to be an elder in a local congregation. You know, being above reproach and being hospitable and... uh, not being a novice, and, you know, again, we'd have to go to First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to read all of those qualifications. That also means that he was a married man and that he had children to be an elder. Uh, he, had, he was an elder of a local church. Now, which church it was, we don't know. It could have been a church in Rome, a church in Jerusalem. We're just not sure. But he was a fellow elder. He was also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You know, that, that's interesting to us that, that he doesn't describe himself as, a, as a, a witness of the resurrection. 
But he describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And again, maybe he's being relatable to those Christians that he's writing to who are undergoing that suffering. And then finally, he says he's a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. A partaker. Uh, the Greek word koinonia that means to share, to partake, to have fellowship with one another. And Peter said, Peter's anticipating here the return of the Lord. He says to those elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. You know, the church is being persecuted at this time. They're being persecuted. And he's saying, listen, the leaders of these congregations, these elders, you need to start leading. You need to step up, shepherd them. Again, there's that second uh, description of an elder to be a shepherd. Uh, the Greek word poimen, to shepherd, to pastor. We understand, you know, what a shepherd does, that he's with his sheep and he's feeding them and guiding them and protecting them. And the idea here that Peter is saying, shepherd them to heaven. Shepherd your congregation. Lead them in the right way to go. Be there for them in the fields with them. Do that by exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Again, here's that third description of an elder. The Greek word episkopos means to bishop, to to oversee. Elders are to exercise oversight, but not under compulsion. You know, there are times when tough decisions are going to be made in, in a local body. Right? And elders exercise that authority in those matters when they are there, when they exist. And the church, is, of course, is encouraged to support them. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, let them do this job with joy and not with grief. Of course, it requires uh, a considerable commitment and energy and time to be an elder of a congregation. This is a work that's not to be taken under compulsion, Peter says, but voluntarily. I've seen small churches that have an eldership and maybe there's two men and one of them has to step down, whether he's moving away or just at the the age in life that he needs to step away from that. And those congregations want to keep an eldership. And so what do they do? They find a man who maybe isn't as qualified and sort of compel him to step into that role. But but again, Peter says uh, that those who uh, deem worthy of this Um, this endeavor are not to do it under compulsion, but again, voluntarily. See, but when good men fail to accept this, this office, it leaves the door open for maybe someone who's less qualified or less experienced. I've heard preachers uh, talk before about, you know, we send men to preacher school for a couple of years to train them to be preachers. Why not send men to an eldership school to teach them how to be elders? It's just as important. It's vitally important. It's more important. And Peter also says, do this not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You know, while it's not commonly practiced today, and really I've never seen it practiced, uh, elders, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, are worthy of their wages. You know, it's a scriptural thing that elders can get paid uh, to, uh, you know, work for a church, to be an elder for the church. But again, they are not to do this for money, Peter says. Uh, They are not to do this for sordid gain, but again, for eagerness. The the idea is that they are doing it to save souls, not to make a living. But also the elders are not to be lording or domineering over the church, Peter writes. Elders are not the spiritual bosses of a congregation, but they're the spiritual leaders. You know, the, 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 the spiritual fathers of a congregation, Instead, they're, they're to be examples, Peter says, for the congregation. Remember in, in John, or 3 John, 
you know, the very short letter of 3 John, there's a man that we meet by the name of Diotrephes. And this man, uh, many believe that this man, although we don't know for sure, many believe that he was an elder in this congregation that John is writing to. And he tells us that this man loved the preeminence, that he loved being first among them. Uh, there were some brethren traveling in the area, and this man, Diotrephes, refused to accept them, refused to help them. And so uh, basically, you know, he was lording over them. And John writes in that epistle that, you know, listen, I'll take care of Diotrephes when I get there. But the idea is that, that, that Diotrephes was lording over that congregation. He was one of, of multiple elders, but he was refusing to help these brethren there. Well, why not? Why not, Peter writes, because one day, he says there in verse 4, the chief shepherd will appear and all will have to give an account, even an elder uh, will have to give an account. And he says, those that do well will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look at verse 5. Now he's going to switch gears, uh, not to humility of the eldership, but the humility of all others. He says in verse 5, uh, now, excuse me, in verse 5, uh, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject to your elders. In order for an effective eldership to lead, you know, uh, we got to be willing to follow. Younger men, he says. And, you know, why is he pointing out to younger men? Well, younger men tend to think they know uh, a lot, right? They, they, think, they tend to think that they know more than everyone. And so Peter is saying, hey, listen, be subject to them. Support them in their decisions. Pray for them, respect them, encourage them. It's just a, it's such a thankless job, but it's the, one of the most important jobs there is. You know, and I think a lot of elderships that I've seen, uh, especially in 2020, um, you know, congregations really needed to be reminded of this verse or what happened in 2020. You know, COVID forced elderships to make some tough decisions, you know, whether to meet in person or not, or whether to require masks or not. There was a congregation that we were worshiping uh, with in Cookville, Tennessee, that required, you know, our temperature to be taken before we entered into the building. You know, elders had to make a lot of tough decisions uh, during that time that they would have never had to make before. They did the best they could, but still some uh, were upset at those decisions. Peter says, be subject to your elders. And also he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. You know, he's quoting from the Proverbs here uh, of Solomon, but clothe yourselves with humility. You know, what does that mean? It means let people see it, demonstrate it. You know, if our attitude is always to second guess or our leaders or complain about decisions that are made uh, that, that, that maybe aren't, you know, having to do with doctrinal, doctrinal things, but opinionated things. Um, Again, he says, show that humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. You know, how far do you think you're going to get? Peter says he gives grace to the humble. And so Peter requires humility in leadership and also uh, for the congregation that's following that lead. And then finally, let's look at the, the last section here in first Peter, the humility of hope. Verses six and seven, Peter writes, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. See, again, we must be people of humility. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know, the, the civil government and the home or the church. You know, we've read uh, these past few weeks that Peter says we need to be submissive in those, those areas. And if we do, he will exalt us at the proper time. But the alternative is, if, we, if he's not exalting us, then we are exalting ourselves before him. And that, of course, is not what, how we want to go about it. One way to go about humbling oneself, though, he tells us there, is by casting our anxiety on him. You know, during their persecution, we wonder, you know, what could they really do about it? Well, really nothing, right? It was coming nonetheless. You know, they needed to fasten their seatbelts and get ready for that. But no, Peter says, know that he will take care of you. You know, we know that anxiety is more prevalent today. And again, we need to hear this verse in particular more and more today. Right? He says, cast, throw them Literally throw them on him and, and leave them with him. Right? Uh, when we worry to a point, you know, we're losing our focus on God. And we need to trust that he's going to take those worries and take care of it. Remember what Paul said? Be anxious for nothing. So take those worries and anxieties in your life and cast them onto God. And he will take care of those for you. In verses 8 and 9, Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You know, the, the idea there is being well balanced, being self controlled. You know, this is the third time that Peter has told us to be uh, sober spirited. He did it back in chapter 1, verse 13, keep sober in spirit. Chapter 4, verse 7, he said, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And now he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Well, why? Why? Because the devil, your adversary, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Why is he doing that? Because he is seeking those souls to devour. But Peter says, resist him, be firm in your faith. I was reading, there, there's a, a specific tactic that one can use uh, when you're uh, in the area of mountain lions. You know, I, I've never been uh, in an area where there are mountain lions, but supposedly, uh, if you were to take a pair of sunglasses and put them on backwards, you know, you have lessened your chances of getting attacked behind by a lion because they think that, you know, you might be looking at them uh, because of the glasses, and so some people have used that tactic before. They'll walk around, uh, with, you know, of course, with their eyes seeing, but wearing their sunglasses backward, and so the lion won't sneak up on and, and attack them. Peter says we need to be watchful for like that. Like we have sunglasses on in the back of our heads, watching all around us for the attacks of the devil. And Peter tells us right there how to do it. He gives us two ways. Number one, stand firm in your faith, right? Don't give any ground. And number two, realize that you're not alone, See, that's the mistake that a lot of us make is that uh, it's us versus the devil. But it's not a one-on-one -on -one matchup, right? It's the church versus the devil. You know, we're more likely to give in if it's just us versus Satan. But if we remember that someone else somewhere, one of our brethren is going through the same struggles, you know, it could strengthen us and encourage us to keep going. Peter continues in verse 10 and 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered for a little while. 
Again, you're not going to escape it. Uh, it's coming, Peter says, but here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to perfect you. Uh, this is the same word uh, that Matthew uses, Matthew chapter 4, verses 21, when talking about uh, the, the father of James and John was mending their nets uh, to perfect someone, to mend them, to restore. You know, you get a, a rip in your net and you have to mend it together. That's what God's going to do for you after you go through the sufferings of life. He's going to mend you. He's going to perfect you. He's going to confirm you, he says. He's going to fix you securely so that nothing can move you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to make you more capable. And then lastly, Peter says he's going to establish you or settle you, meaning he's going to build you on a sure foundation. Are you familiar with kitsuing? Kitsugi, sorry, I pronounced that wrong. Kitsugi. This is a Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with glue. But here's the, but here's the, the kick. The glue is made of gold. And so rather than throwing away a broken vase that you might break, it gets repaired. You know, you take this golden glue and you repair it and put it back together. And the repair actually makes the piece of pottery more beautiful and even more valuable than it was when it, before it was broken. That's the idea here. The God of all grace does that with our lives. When we're most broken, uh, when we're shattered to pieces, he's going to pick those pieces up, glue us back together in that gold, and it's going to be more valuable to us going further. Peter concludes his letter, verses 12 through 14. Through Salvanus, our, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ. Peter, as so many of the writers of their epistles uh, end in their conclusion by uh, letting them know about the other Christians in the area, and Peter tells us about through Silvanius, and this most likely is Silas. You know, we, we've met Silas in the book of Acts who accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys, and it appears that he was either Peter's scribe uh, here, that, that he took down the dictation of what Peter had to say and wrote it, or maybe Silas just simply delivered that letter. But either way, Silas had a, a part to play in this letter to getting to those Christians, and he even tells us the purpose of him writing this letter in verse 12. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Right? He's exhorting them, urging them to stay faithful, uh, steadfast in their faith, but also testifying that uh, Peter was a true witness, a true witness of Jesus. This is the true grace of God, Peter said, and I know because I was there. So stand firm in it. He says, uh, she who is in Babylon sends the greetings as well. And, you know... If we know our Old Testament, we know a little something about Babylon. Uh, but this is in reference to Rome, the, the, the church in Rome. It's sort of a code word, you know. If I were to say Big Apple, you would immediately think New York. If I were to say the Windy City, you'd think of Chicago. Well, uh, to some of the Christians, uh, they referred to Rome as Babylon because it was a symbolism synonymous with the destruction of God's people, God's city, and God's temple. You know, the book of Revelation refers to uh, Rome six times as Babylon. And the, what Peter is doing is hearkening this idea of Nebuchadnezzar's brutal empire and, and the captivity that they went to. And that's how Peter associated Rome to Christians. And again, stay humble. 
Stay humble, brethren. You're in Babylon. You know, it's not going to be easy, easy uh, for you. Stay humble. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all, all who are in Christ. Well, I hope this evening, as we've uh, concluded this study, that these series of lessons on 1 Peter have hopefully strengthened your hope in Christ. And, you know, we read this entire book together. That, that's quite an accomplishment. You know, Peter says there in verse 12 that this was a brief letter. Uh, but we, uh, we tried to touch on as much as possible in these couple of months. But our efforts don't stop here, right? Just because we are hearers of the word, that also means that we need to be doers of the word as well. We also have to live and act as God, on God's word. Right? Put behind our past, Peter says, whatever it may be, and remember that we have been born again by this imperishable seed, the word of God. And therefore, we are to live holy lives, uh, glorifying him. Uh, we build up the church. Remember that? Uh, each member, member uh, is that living stone that builds up that church. We treat all uh, with the idea in mind to convert them to Christ that Peter was trying to get through to us. Uh, we follow Christ's example even in our suffering. Remember Christ, while being reviled, never reviled in return. We live our lives always ready to give an example for the hope that is in us. But we do that with gentleness and reverence. And we humbly wait for the day that God will exalt us if we are humble in return. And we fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This evening, as we conclude this lesson, as we think upon these things that Peter uh, has recorded for us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you haven't become a Christian, it, it's night is the night. Uh, the waters are prepared behind us. Do what they did in the, the first century to become Christians when they, they wanted to know uh, what they needed to do to be saved. And they were told, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we can help you with that tonight if that be your desire. Or maybe you need the prayers of the congregation here uh, from the brethren. Uh, maybe uh, you, you want to study something in particular. Please let us know. Um, let me know. Let, let some of the, uh, the people here know, and uh, we'll help you in any way that we can. Uh, but uh, let us know as together we stand and sing.